0: We are going to continue this evening our examination over the wrath of God as it's revealed in the book of Revelation. And last week we worked our way rapidly through most of the second set of seven judgments that God will pour out upon the people who remain on the earth during the time of the tribulation when the judgments fall. The, the good news is that the church will not be part of those judgments. We, we believe the New Testament demonstrates that the rapture of church will proceed. The, the coming of the tribulations period. So, assuming that you believe in Jesus Christ and you're part of the New Testament church, you will not experience these judgments. Uh, God's wrath for our sin has been poured out on his son. And that's what we are celebrating then this week as we enter what's called the Passion Week. And we think about how he went to the cross, he took the wrath of God. So, the judgments that we're looking for, or looking at here, are for those who refuse to accept. Jesus as their willing substitute. Those who refuse to accept that he died in their place. Those that will not accept that he gave his life on their behalf. Instead they're steadfast in the rebellion against God and and insist on doing things their way, not God's way. To accept Jesus as Savior, that, that just simply as we've said many times means that you accept that you're a sinner deserving the wrath of God. But instead of receiving the wrath that we're Looking at here, the wrath that comes from God, you accept that Jesus took it. It, To accept Jesus as Savior means that you recognize there's a God that you wronged and that this wrath is righteous wrath. It, It means that you are not God in your life. There's one true living God. Rebellious hearts refuse to accept these basic truths. Rebellious hearts refuse to accept the implications that come with these truths. And therefore, they refuse to accept the offer of salvation that that Jesus offers. So, I bring this up because I hope that we, we remember that even the extended process of wrath that we're looking at here in this book is an act of grace and mercy from God. God is more than able to wipe out rebellious humanity in one fell swoop. He does not have to give a time of seven years where he's pouring out this extreme wrath. He does not need multiple steps to accomplish his divine judgment. The multiple steps, the the sequences that we're seeing of these judgments, that allows for time for some to repent of their rebellion even during this extreme time of God pouring out his wrath, he's giving time for some to flee to the mercy of Christ. Now, to this point in the book, we have not seen a lot of that occurring, and tonight we won't either, but let's not lose track of the, the, that truth, that, that in the midst of this wrath even, that we have the constant presence of God's grace and mercy, and that remains right alongside the, the pouring out of the wrath of God. Last week, we made it through the, the sounding of the sixth trumpet. I'm really hoping my voice holds up tonight. It, reading the whole book this morning took more out of it than it's used to, so I'm hoping it holds up. So we, we got through the sixth trumpet this evening, and, and the trumpets, I'm sure you remember, that that's the name that's given to that second series of, of seven judgments. Each one in that series was initiated by the sounding of a trumpet. Well, the seven trumpet judgments are what made up the seventh seal judgment. And the seven seal judgments were the first set that we saw. The the seal judgments were revealed earlier in the book. When the seventh seal was open, we were given a closer look. We zoomed in and we saw that the seventh seal actually contains these seven trumpets. There's were actually seven more judgments to come. Well, we've seen six of those. Uh, I trust you also remember that to this point, these judgments have been devastating. As I've said a couple times already this evening, that the tribulation is seven-year period long in length, but we're somewhere short of that seven-year mark at this point. I don't know exactly where we are. We're somewhere in the last half, I would assume, with these trumpet judgments, because there's no specific time markers, but things are intensifying. It seems as if it comes faster and faster. Um, I would speculate that maybe there's only a year or so remaining, so we're somewhere around six years in, and it's been devastating. We've been told that by this point, half of the population on the earth that entered the tribulation period are already um, dead. They've they've been destroyed, wiped out by these judgments. Well, this evening, we're going to hit pause once more as far as the, the direct action of the tribulation judgments go. If you remember, after the sixth seal judgment was experienced, we saw that that mankind overall had not repented of their sin, and before the seventh seal was opened, we had an interlude in the Revelation, a, a break in, in which John's vision shifted, and and he saw a couple of scenes that were somewhat outside the flow of time. They they were there to give additional information. He was showing things that would aid in understanding the continued judgments that were about to come in that specific case what we saw already john was shown the answer to the question of who would be able to stand the the wrath that was yet to come and they they was at the halfway point of tribulation things had been devastating already and and if more judgments were coming who could stand when the seventh seal was opened well before the seventh trumpet sounds John is once more shown a couple of scenes that, that step outside the flow of the judgments. And these scenes, again, give us background information for, for what's coming when, when the seventh trumpet blows. My goal tonight is to look at all of chapter 10 and most of chapter 11 in Revelation to, to get us right up to the sounding of the seventh trumpet. In, in chapter 10, what John sees is, just I'm simply calling it the little book. The the Little Book. Some of your Bibles may title it The Angel in the Little Book, something of that nature. As we get ready to read the the chapter, I I want to note that John receives this newest scene in in this extended vision as his perceived location shifts. Um, He he gets another scene, and and, and when the trumpets were sounding last week in, in the chapters we saw, John saw things from a heavenly perspective. He was watching what was going on in heaven. He was seeing the angels holding the trumpets. He was seeing them blow their trumpets, hearing the sounds of heaven. And then it was like as he was watching it fall upon the earth. That the fact that he was able to zoom in and see the details about what was happening on, on the earth, uh, you know, even tiny details, if you remember when one of the judgments had locusts that came up from the abyss, he could see the, the hair on their faces, and, and or their, their hair and their faces, other elements. And then with the demon horsemen, he, he saw their tails were, had heads like snakes. So even though he had a heavenly perspective, he was able to zoom in and see minute detail and how that works. I don't quite know, but, but it's something that we can accept. And uh, That's how divine visions work. Now, though, John will shift, and and John will be looking from the perspective of one standing on the earth as the scene shifts. Let's look at Revelation chapter 10. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which was opened. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And he cried out with loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, lift up, up his right hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me, And saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey, and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. The chapter that I just read here, it's one complete scene. John sees it as one scene, but we're going to break it down into a couple sections so as we discuss it here. In in the first seven verses, the the focus is on the angel that have this little book. The angel and the little book. Now Uh, I'll say that commentators attempt to identify, there's some commentators rather, that attempt to identify this angel with Christ because really just majestic description saying that that seems to be beyond an angel. They they look at some of the elements, things like that's clothed in a cloud and has a voice like a lion and they find echoes in scripture where Christ has those kind of descriptors. The text though it's clear, this is another strong angel. This is not Christ. In Revelation, the, the word angel never refers to Christ. An angel is always an angel. Everywhere else we see that word, and there's no reason to think it's any different here. It's a, what we have here is a magnificent angel that John sees, and, and this angel is sent on divine mission. We've seen several angels been tasked with divine missions up to this point. Well, here's another one. In fact, the, the rainbow that's on this angel's head probably indicates that he's on a mission of mercy. Uh, much like the original rainbow that was placed in sky for Noah, that, that was a promise that God would never judge the earth com- through complete destruction of a flood again in that way. Well, it's a symbol of mercy. Same thing here. John quickly notes that, that this mighty angel, as magnificent as, as he is, he's holding a little book. Actually, again, book is a scroll. It's a small scroll that he's holding. And as I said back in chapter five, when, when the Lamb took the book, when Christ took the book, an angel or, or in heaven from the, the hand of, of God on his throne, books as we think of them, didn't exist at this time. so it's a scroll. Um, these were written on scroll. This is a small one. And this one is already open. So it's not the same scroll that the Christ had. It's a different scroll. There, There's no seals that need to be broken on, on this book. It's it's open. It's ready to be used. This angel is huge. That's one thing that, that's clear. When he arrives on the earth, he's huge. He stands with one foot on land and one foot on the sea. And most likely that indicates he has authority over both. He has authority over land and the sea. As soon as he's standing on the earth, he cries out with a loud voice, and, and there's seven peels of thunder they immediately sound. And John is immediately told to not record them. The, the fact that there's seven peels of thunder and that John is prepared to immediately write them down... Uh, Right, what he sees as a result you know every time he's seen a seal open something happened when he heard a trumpet blow something happened we'll hear seven thunders happen and immediately or they sound immediately something happens that he wants to write down so it's possible these represent another seven judgments that that God showed him and yet the moment that John begins to write he hears a voice from heaven telling him to stop it's not the strong angel that's standing on the earth that speaks. It's another voice. Since John is on the earth now rather than in heaven, he, he doesn't see a source for the voice, but he hears it telling him to stop, to, to seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. Sealing them up with, without recording what they were, that, that implies that, that God chose not to execute additional judgments. Now, I'll grant that's pure speculation because we don't know what John didn't write. There's no way to know when it's not written down. So we all we can do is speculate. But it fits in with the, the flow of things as, as that we've seen so far as, as well as what the angel swears there in verse 6. The The angel swears by God. the The one who created heaven and the things in it. The earth and the things in it. The sea and the things in it. God, the creator God. He swears by him that there will be delay no longer. Remember, every one of the judgments ultimately is a delay of the end. It's the mercy of God mixed in with the, the judgment. And this angel says there, there'll be a delay no longer. It's an oath that, that the end of the judgments of God would come without any further delay. Back, back in Revelation 6, 9, um, verses 10 and 11, when the martyrs were under the the altar they were asking how long do we have to wait for vengeance they, they were looking god to avenge them and for those who wronged them that the trumpets last week were apparently the start of that vengeance but if there was another set of judgments between the trumpets and the set that's yet to come the bowls that that's the the judgments that that come out of the seventh trumpet if there was another set that would delay the end the, the delay would be extended well we're told there will be no further delay when the seven trumpet, the seventh trumpet sounds, the end will come and in fact, verse seven tells us that when the seventh trumpet sounds, then the mystery of God is finished throughout the New testament that that phrase mystery of God that that refers to god's redemptive plan, which has been revealed in portions it, it hasn't come out in, in one fell. Um, Revelation has been in portions as God reveals it. The the idea of mystery refers to portions that the God had not revealed to previous generations. Previous generations did not know, but then God revealed it, and what was a mystery now is known. For example, the church age was a mystery until it was revealed through Paul that it would occur. God gave that revelation to Paul and the other apostles, and and that was after the resurrection of Christ. So we, we had the church being revealed, the mystery. Now the angel is saying that when this final trumpet sounds, God's redemptive plan is finished. Finished means brought to completion. That's the end. With with final judgments, God's plan will, will reach a, a swift conclusion. Of course, this angel also notes that the conclusion will be that which God has revealed as good news, this, he, that is, he has preached, if you will, the, the good news through his servants, the prophets, that the end is here. Even this, this minor detail, that this reference to, to God's servants, the prophets, rather than Christ's servants, the, the apostles, that, that indicates that the redemption coming to his final fulfillment is, is that which concerns Israel, not the church the, the church, as I said, is gone. The judgments that are yet to, to finish, they, they must come about so that Israel can have at long last its Messiah as he comes and, and then will set up his throne. I mentioned earlier that the rainbow suggests this angel's on a mission of mercy. that The mercy seems to be that, that God is finishing his plan without any further delay, which, which also means without further judgment. There's just the judgments that, have all, that, that are yet to sound with the seventh trumpet. There, there's not additional ones. God has promised that Israel as a nation would survive the tribulation. There, there will be many martyrs even from Israel, but there will also be survival. Additional judgments would undoubtedly increase the number of martyrs and, and decrease the survivor. There, there's mercy here in, in that God's preserving Israel. There's mercy in God bringing the the time of judgment to a close. So this is looking at the angel here with the little book, and and from that we move on to the eating of the little book. John becomes an active participant in the vision in in verse 8, that the voice from heaven speaks for a second time and and, and engages John in the action. We, We... have almost forgotten that the angel is standing there holding the little book. There's been so much discussion back and forth with the, the pills of thunder and the oath, but now this book that he was holding, it, it comes back to the center of attention. John's told by the heavenly voice to, to take the book, and that, that open scroll that the angel's holding his hand, take it him, And as soon as John goes up to the angel and asks for the scroll, the angel hands it to him. And then the angel, as he hands it to him, tells him, eat this, eat it. Even as he tells John, eat the scroll, though, the angel warns him that it will taste sweet in your mouth, but it will not sit well in your stomach. Rather, it will make John's stomach bitter. Now, there, there's no reason to take the eating as literal when when Ezekiel was commissioned and God commissioned his prophet Ezekiel in, in chapter 3 of that book Ezekiel was given a scroll to eat and and the eating was literal eating but for both John and, and Ezekiel it takes place in a vision so within the vision is literal eating of the scroll. But that eating in the vision symbolizes something it it symbolizes understanding the contents it symbolizes assimilating them and making them part of their being If you think about it, we still use very similar figures of speech now we We hear something new and it has a lot of detail in it and, and we 'll say things like i don 't know i'm going to, have to take some time to digest that that 's the the idea here. When, when we say that, we don't mean that we physically have eaten the words that, that contain the information. We, what it means is that we need to take a while, some time to assimilate this information in, into our thinking, to make it part of the understanding of our life. Much as it takes time to assimilate the, the energy that we get from food, when we physically take food in, we assimilate it. This is what John has told you to with his book. In, in his vision, he physically eats the scroll, but, but he's informed that he is to assimilate the information that, that's contained here. He's also warned that, that while he will enjoy receiving the information, it's going to be hard to deal with. John does what he's told, and, and he discovers that things are exactly as predicted. Re- receiving is very sweet, dwelling on it is not. Verse 11 gives a hint of what John receives in the book because it says, They said to me, who are the they? The they must be the angel and the book combined. Between the angel and the book, these things inform John. Combined they inform John that, that he's not done prophesying. He's going to receive more information that, that he is to pass along. There are things yet for him to reveal concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. The, the fact that, that John has been chosen here by Christ as the mouthpiece for this revelation would be exciting. Think about it. You, you receive word from, from Christ. That's the, the sweet element. Undoubtedly, on, on first reflection, it, it's wonderful to, to serve as the recipient of revelation. On further reflection, though, John recognizes that the content that he's being told to reveal is very difficult. John still has more judgments to communicate. It's also interesting to note that kings are listed in that final classification concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Five times in Revelation, people are grouped into fourfold classification, peoples and nations, languages and tribes. This one-time tribes is replaced with kings. Most likely that suggests that the, the prophecy that John's going to receive deals with all people regardless of, uh, of social distinctions. Kings will be included right alongside common man, which... By, by the way, is what we'll see in the coming chapters. The kings do not escape the judgments that are coming. Their their riches and their authority and their power are meaningless when God pours out these final judgments. Chapter 10, the, the first scene in this interlude, before the, the sounding of the seventh trumpet, it, it deals with this little book, this recommissioning, if you will, of John so that he's prepared for the 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 ongoing visions that he's going to to receive, the ongoing prophetic information that he has to share, things are going to be hard for him to to put down. So so God recommissions him, re energizes him. Be, before we leave this chapter, we should consider the the fact that that God ensures that John is prepared, and we should also see that that. John is prepared to simultaneously serve to prepare us for what is coming. God isn't just preparing John. John has passed the revelation along. He's pass along to the church. God is doing that because God most certainly knows what is about to be revealed. God knows the suffering that's coming. God knows the death and the destruction that's about to be unleashed. God knows this because God is the one who's ordained it. God has, has even apparently limited it in his mercy. His mercy that's, that's mixed in with his judgment. And, and all of this should work together to assure us that our God remains firmly in control over everything that happens. God remains sovereign over all earthly affairs throughout this tribulation, right up to and, and through the sounding of the final trumpet. God is in control. He's in control if i if he's going to cut this period short so that people will survive as he's promised they would. God is is in control of what John has revealed. He's in control of John as his mouthpiece. God's in control of all, of all of it. We we cannot forget that as we go through. So we've considered that the, the little, little book in chapter 10, that's the first uh interlude scene that we have here, and and let's move on to chapter 11 and consider the second scene that, that's given before the trumpet sounds that the two witnesses. As I said at the outset, we're not looking at this entire chapter, but we will look at most of it. The The scene in this chapter is really a continuation of the previous chapter. There's no shift in perspective. John doesn't move from where he's on the earth. There, there's no... and additional I saw so John isn't shifting things but he does see more stuff new a new scene if you will from from his current location and as he sees this new scene John continues to be personally involved so let's begin and and read the rest of, of what we'll consider this evening chapter 11 verse 1 then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff And someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for forty two months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for twelve hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, Fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky, so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and the tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Again, we'll discuss what we've just read in, in sections. Uh, three sections here. In the first six verses, we, we have the, the ministry of the witnesses. The, the ministry of the witnesses. The, the events here in the chapter clearly take place in Jerusalem. Uh, apparently during the, the first half of the tribulation. Remember, we're outside of time at this point, so time can be a little bit fluid. We're not moving through the sequence of, of judgments. So we're in the first half of the tribulation, it, it appears, and the reference to this being the city where the Lord was crucified and in verse 8, it it really leaves no doubt as to where this is at. We're in Jerusalem. Both the, the 42 months of verse 2 and the 12, six, 1260 days in verse Three, that, that suggests time frames so of three and a half years. If you do the math, that's three and a half years. The, the fact that, that John's told to, to measure the temple suggests that what we have going on is God is protecting Jerusalem in, in the temple that will be rebuilt sometime be, by the time we get to the tribulation. That's, that's all we know. When we come to the tribulation period, there, there's a temple in Jerusalem again. And, and God will protect Jerusalem and the temple and in, in the worship that curve there and all of that works together to indicate that this is in the first half of the tribulation as i said we're outside the flow of judgments so before the final trumpet sounds what's happening is is john's taken back in time and, and given information here that describes some things that happened much earlier in, in the tribulation from where he's at now he's probably like i said a, around a year six you know, we don't have exact time, but but that's where he's at. But he's pulled out of time and shown some things that have happened earlier that are leading up to what's about to occur. As I mentioned earlier in the study, there there's going to be one main player that Satan will um, place in the center of the opposition against God during the tribulation period. If the person that that we call the Antichrist. From various prophecies, it seems as if the Antichrist will first come on the scene by making a covenant with Israel and guaranteeing Israel's protection, allowing Israel to, to worship God in the temple at Jerusalem. At the midpoint of the seven-year period, the Antichrist breaks this agreement. And I believe that the 42 months in which the holy city is, is tread underfoot there in verse 2 is that actually last half, whereas the 1260 days in which the, the two men, the two witnesses, serve as a major nuisance for the Antichrist, that's the first half. So John's given this quick overview. And there's a lot of effort that goes into those who study prophecy trying to identify who are the two witnesses. They, they clearly, when you look at them, they have a lot in common with Moses and, and Isaiah. Considering that it was Moses and Isaiah who joined Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. It is possible that these two witnesses are actually Moses and, and Elijah. Did I say Isaiah? It just dawned on me I'm saying Isaiah. It's ringing in back my mind as I'm looking at my notes. Elijah. Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. So it's possible this is Moses and Elijah resurrected um, once more so that they can perform this vital ministry on behalf of the Lord. I don't know for sure who this is. What is clear is that these two witnesses serve in a capacity that's very similar to the capacity God put Moses and Elijah into during their original lives. They they represent God to the world. And by representing God, they serve as, as a major nuisance to the Antichrist. From Jerusalem, they pronounce God's judgment on the world it's likely that they've been there in Jerusalem pronouncing the, or even announcing the seal judgments before the seal judgments fell during the first half of the tribulation. Shortly before they occur, they, they say, this is what is going to come now, much like Moses and Elijah announced God's judgment uh, at, at, during their time. If you remember, in both the case of Moses and the case of Elijah, the, the rulers of their day Pharaoh and, and Ahab, they associated the prophets. Moses and Elijah, they associated them directly with the pain and the suffering that the judgments brought. They, they saw these two prophets as the troublemakers. And that's what happens here again. These witnesses are associated in the minds of the entire world with being the source of the distress. Judgments are coming that these men have announced, so therefore these men are causing the judgments. Rather than repenting of their sinful rebellion, though, people being led by the Antichrist, they blame these two witnesses. Apparently, during that first three and a half years, while they're testifying and and prophesying from Jerusalem during the 1260 days, these witnesses face many threats of violence. But but God protects them. God gives them the ability to destroy their enemies with fire. if you look at verse 5, they, fire flows from their mouths. That, that phrase could mean that fire literally comes out of their mouth. You know, we, we read it that way and kind of maybe think dragon-like in, in phrase, but could also just mean that they have the ability to call down fire from heaven with their words. Their words bring fire from heaven. In, in either case, what we know is that they are effectively defended through God's power. No one can touch them. Furthermore, they're able to initiate other divine miracles and judgment that that all work together to keep pressure on the rebellious hearts of mankind. They bring about all these plagues and and, and suffering. That's the, the ministry that they have. Now look at verse 7 with me as, as we read about the death of the witnesses. Again, I've already read it once. Look again though. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. For for three and a half years, God divinely protected the witnesses. He, he protected them from all attempts at harm. But then at the midpoint of the tribulation, they're killed. Verse 7 is the first reference that we have to this individual who is going to be called the beast in this letter. As we go along in the coming chapters, we, we can figure out that, that this word term beast is just another name for the Antichrist. The Antichrist wages war directly against the, these two witnesses. And now at the midpoint, God allows them to be overcome and killed by the Antichrist. This all seems to be the turning point in the Antichrist's world rule. He had made peace with Israel, remember? He allowed worship to go on in the temple, and, and now he kills these two men that have been the world's major source of nuisance in, in their minds, the, the reason that they're suffering. And several things all happen at the midpoint of the tribulation that allows the Antichrist to throw off his cloak of political appeasement and truly become a worldwide dictator. We'll see more of the details of, of this transformation in the coming weeks, so I'm not going to say any more about tonight, just tell you that this seems to be the turning point in his, his career where he becomes a worldwide dictator. and You can see where the death of these two witnesses would play into that because this death would be considered a great victory by the people who were still living on the earth. In their minds, the, the source, the, the cause of of their suffering has been killed. If the, the source of their suffering has been killed, then life should improve now, right? We should be past all the misery that's come. They even refuse to bury the two witnesses. That, that's the greatest insult that could be shown. It, it shows absolute disdain for these two men of God. So in, instead of of bowing before God and acknowledging their sin, instead of honoring the men of God, they celebrate their death. And they they turn the event into a worldwide party. They, They start sending gifts to one another. Look at the specific final words in this section in verse 10. This is those who dwell on the earth. These are the same people who the martyrs in verse or, or martyrs in the fifth seal were, were seeking vengeance on back in, in chapter 6. By, by the end of the sixth seal in chapter 6, these are the people, those who dwell on the earth who, who are asking, who is able to stand before the judgments of God? That was a question that came to them as they hit the midpoint of the tribulation. Six seals had been opened, severe judgments had come, judgments that had been announced by these two witnesses and they're asking, who's able to stand more judgment. Well, in their mind, they now have hope. The The two men that caused all these things to happen are dead. In, in fact, the Antichrist, the, the ruler, has demonstrated that he is superior because he was able to kill them. They have great hope. And that hope great quickly turns to shock in the next verses as, as we see the resurrection and the ascension. Look at verse 11. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God comes into them, and they stood on their feet. For three and a half days, one day for each year that the the two witnesses had represented God during the tribulation, their their dead bodies had laid out there on the, the street in Jerusalem. Then, most unexpectedly, life came back into the bodies, and they stood up. It's probably a literary understatement when we read, great fear fell upon those who were watching. You know, that, that's one of those things where I think there's not enough words to really express. I, I'm sure they were terrified. Great fear indeed. If, if these men were brought back to life, then their reason for hope that the suffering had passed is completely undone. Their their expectation that the Antichrist is superior is is wiped away. And to make matters worse for the people watching, they immediately hear a voice from heaven calling the two witnesses, come up here, and then they see them physically ascend in a cloud. And while they're still pondering what all this means, a massive earthquake hits Jerusalem, leveling a a tenth of the city and killing 7,000 people. Well, compared to the judgments that that killed a quarter of the world's population, according to chapter 6, this is not a a huge number, uh, 7,000. But when you put it in the context of everything that just happens, is any wonder that the rest of the people are terrified? Now, I want us to realize that when verse 13 ends with the phrase that these terrified people gave glory to the God of heaven, That phrase does not mean that they repented of their rebellion and that they truly began to worship God. It it could mean that, but it doesn't need to mean that. All it needs to mean is that they acknowledge that the things that just happened were done by God, the the one true and living God. I I think John is taken back in this interlude to, to understand more fully what led the people of the world to running for the mountains and the caves in, in the sixth seal judgment. And, and if you go back to chapter 6, after the sixth seal was opened and, and many things happened, they ran into the mountains and the caves crying out for the caves to fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who is able to stand? What's caused this extreme panic. They're asking these questions because they know that since God has raised these two witnesses back to life, there is no reason to expect that the judgments are over. They're asking this question because they now know that the Antichrist's victory is not final. In in fact, they likely realize that the Antichrist's power is limited. It's infinitely less than the the one who sits on the throne and and less than the the one who is pouring out the divine wrath. The Antichrist is not God. Think about what's happened then from that point in the tribulation's timeline till now. This is where they were at at the midpoint, and we've had six more judgments fall faster, with greater intensity. Another third of the world's population has died. Yet we know that only two of the three great woes have been delivered. And we've just seen that there will, from chapter 10, there will be no further delays. The end is coming. Which brings us to verse 14. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. We reconnect with the judgments. That verse has us reconnecting. It it resumes the narrative that that was left off at the end of chapter 9. It it reconnects with the sequence of judgments, brings us back into the flow of time of, of the tribulation. We know that the third woe is coming, the seventh trumpet is coming. It's about to sound. But now we have the third woe coming quickly. The adverb has been added quickly. It's been that added to our knowledge because there will be no further delay. There will be no chronological break. There will be no moment of respite for the the, the, those dwelling on the earth. The final blow is about to sound. That the trumpet is ready to blow. But we will wait until next week for it to sound. Tonight, we've looked at another interlude. Two scenes that show us some background information that helps us understand what is about to be revealed. As with the other sections of this this large tribulation vision, the, the application to us is indirect. If we know Jesus as Savior, we will not be directly involved in this period of human history. Still, there, there is a lesson here for the church. There, there is a reason that John received this revelation for the church. John received and sent it to churches. It's, the, the lesson is there for us. And the lesson is that's reemphasized specifically in these two scenes that we've looked at this evening is that God's plan cannot be thwarted by man's rebellion. Man is rebelling against everything that God does. But God's plan cannot be thwarted. That's what John is being given this background information to show. God is in control. He is sovereign. He is doing what he's going to do. And man cannot thwart that. When suffering struck the churches in John's time, they needed reassurance of this truth. When suffering strikes us, we need reassurance of this truth. God's plan cannot be thwarted by man's rebellion. Whatever we might experience, however great our suffering might become, God's plan is not in jeopardy. It cannot be thwarted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the brief time we've been able to spend again this evening looking at this time as scenes and visions that are hard to understand at times, scenes and visions that are hard to understand, understand both because of the content and we we find them mystifying at times but also because what we do understand is horrific as we see the destruction that's falling upon rebellious mankind father i pray that you would cause us to once again recognize that we too have a rebellious heart that has only been changed by your power were it not for the divine grace of god the mercy that you've shown us we would be like the rest of mankind, continuing to shake our fist at you regardless of of what you display. Father, we thank you for what you've done in our lives, and we pray that we would take courage from what we've seen tonight, that we would take joy and peace even as we may see suffering of ourselves, knowing that our God is in control, and you will never be thwarted by man's rebellion. Father, we thank you for our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.